Section nine of The Crimson Circle by Edgar Wallace. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. Chapter twenty one. River House. Thalia went straight back to the office and found Derek Yale sitting in his room, reading through a heap of unanswered correspondence. Is that the key? Thank you. Put it down there, he said. I'm afraid you'll have to answer most of these yourself. The majority of them are from foolish young people who wish to be trained as private detectives. You will find a form reply, and you can sign the answers yourself. And will you tell this lady, he handed a letter across to her, that I am so busy now that I cannot undertake any further commissions? He took up the key from the table and held it for a second on his hand. You saw Mr. Parr? She laughed. You are almost terrifying, Mr. Yale. I did see Mr. Parr, but how did you know? He shook his head smilingly. It is really very simple, and I should take no credit for my gift, he said, any more than you take credit for your good looks and your predisposition to, shall I say, take things as you find them. She did not answer at once, then, I am a reformed character. I believe you will reform in time. You interest me said Yale, and then, after a pause, immensely. And with a jerk of his head, he dismissed her. She was in the midst of her work, and her typewriter was clacking furiously when he appeared at the door of his room. "'Will you try to get Mr. Parr on the telephone?' he said. "'We'll find his number on the register.' Mr. Parr was not in his office when she called, but half an hour later she reached him, and switched through the wire to the next room. "'Is that you, Parr?' She heard his voice through the door, which was left ajar. "'I'm going to Beardmore's river property to make a search. I have an idea that Brabazon may be hiding there. After lunch. All right. Will you be here at half-past two? Thalia Drummond listened and made a shorthand note on her blotting pad. At half-past two, Parr called. She did not see him, for there was a direct entrance to Yale's room from the corridor without, but she heard the rumble of his voice and presently they went out. She waited until their footsteps had died away, then she took a telegraph form, and addressing it to Johnson, 23 Mildred Street, City, she wrote, Derek Yale has gone to search Beardmore's Riverside House. Thea Drummond was nothing if not dutiful. The house stood upon a little wharf, and was a picture of desolation and neglect. The stone foundation of the wharf was in decay, the parapet broken, the yard a wilderness of weed. Rank grasses and nettles formed almost an impenetrable barrier to their progress after they had opened the gate which led from the mean East End street in which the wharfage was sited. The house itself might at one time have been picturesque, but now, with its broken lower windows, its weather-stained woodwork and discoloured walls, it was a pitiable piece of architectural wreckage. At one end was a big, gaunt stone stall built flush with the war's edge and apparently communicating with the house an air raid during the war had demolished one corner of the wall and robbed it of a few slates which remained leaving the skeleton of rotting roof ribs nakedly bare to inspection a cheerful place said yale as he opened the door it is not the sort of setting in which one could imagine the elegant brabazon is it the passageway was dusty. Cobwebs hung from the ceiling, and the house was silent and lifeless. 
they made a rapid tour through the rooms without however discovering any sign of the fugitive there's a garret here said yale pointing to a flight of steps that led to a trap-door in the ceiling of the upper floor he ran up the steps pushed open the flap and disappeared parr heard him walking along and presently he came down nothing there he said as he slammed the trap-door in its place i never expected that you would find anything said parr as he led the way out of the house they crossed the weed-grown path to the outer gate and from a garret window a white-faced man watched them through the dusty glass a man with a week's growth of beard whom even his most intimate friends would never have recognized as mr brabazon the well-known banker chapter twenty two the messenger of the circle you're a fool sir and an idiot i thought you were a clever detective but you're a fool mr froyant was in his most savage mood and the neat stack of banknotes which stood upon his desk supplied the reason the sight of so much good money going away from him was a cause of unspeakable anguish to the miserly harvey and if his eyes strayed away from that accumulation of wealth they came back again almost instantly derrick yale was a difficult man to offend perhaps i am he said but i must run my own business in my own way mr froyant and if i think that the girl can lead me to the crimson circle as i do think then i shall employ her mark my words froyant shook his fingers in the detective's face that girl is with the gang you will discover my friend that she is the messenger who will call for the money in which case she will be immediately arrested said the other believe me mr froyant i have no intention of losing sight of these notes but if they are taken by the crimson circle the responsibility must be mine not yours my job is to save your life and to divert the vengeance of the circle from you to myself quite right quite right said mr froyant hastily that is the proper way to look at it yale i see that you are not as unintelligent as i thought have it your own way he said he fingered the notes lovingly and putting them into a long envelope handed them with every evidence of reluctance to the detective who slipped the package into his pocket i suppose there's no news of brabazon the rascal has robbed me of over two thousand pounds which i foolishly invested in one of marl's rotten concerns did you know anything about marl asked the detective opening the door i only know that he was a blackguard did you know anything that isn't as well known asked yale patiently his beginnings where he came from he came from france i believe said froyant i know very little about him in fact it was james beardmore who introduced me there was some story about his having been concerned in land swindles in france and of having been imprisoned there but i never take much notice of gossip he was useful to me and i made quite a considerable sum out of most of my investments with him the other smiled in those circumstances he thought the miser might very well forgive the erring marl for his later losses when he got back to his office he found parr waiting with jack beardmore he had not expected a visit from the younger man and guessed that the real attraction was thalia drummond for whose absence he tactfully apologized i've sent miss drummond home pa he said i don't want a girl mixed up in the business of this afternoon there may be a little rough and tumble work he looked keenly at jack beardmore for which i hope you are prepared 
"'I shall be disappointed if there isn't,' said Jack cheerfully. "'What is your plan?' asked Parr. "'I am going into my room a few minutes before the messenger is due to arrive. "'I shall have both doors locked, that into the passage and that into this outer office. "'In the case of this door, I will leave the key on your side and ask you to lock me in. "'My object, of course, is to prevent a surprise. "'As soon as you hear a knock and hear me rise and go to the door and unlock it, "'you will know that the visitor has arrived, and when the door closes again, I want you to station yourself outside in the corridor. Parr nodded. That seems simple, he said. He walked to the window, looked out, and waved a handkerchief, and Yale smiled approvingly. I see you've taken the necessary precautions. How many men have you? I think there are eighty, said Mr. Parr calmly, and they will practically surround the place. Yale nodded. We have to remember, he said that the Crimson Circle may send a very ordinary district messenger, in which case, of course, he must be followed. I am determined that the money shall pass into the hands of the chief of the Crimson Circle himself. That is an essential. I quite agree, said Pa. But I have an idea that the gentleman, or whoever he is, will not come himself. May I look at your office? He walked in and inspected the room. It was lighted by one window. In a corner was a cupboard, the door of which he opened. It was empty, save for a hanging coat. "'If you don't mind,' Inspector Parr was almost humble, "'I want you to stay in the outer office. Thank you. I'll close the door on you. I get rattled if I'm overlooked.' Laughingly, Yale walked from the office, and Mr. Parr closed the door on him. He opened the second door and looked out into the corridor. Presently they heard him close that also. "'You can come in,' he said. "'I've seen all I want.' The room was simply but comfortably furnished. There was a wide fireplace, in which, however, no fire burned, although the day was chilly. "'I don't expect him to get up the chimney,' said Yale, humorously, as he noticed the detective's inspection. "'I never have a fire in this office. I'm one of those hot-blooded mortals who are never really cold.' Jack, a fascinated observer of the search, picked up the deadly little pistol that lay on the detective's table, and examined it cautiously. "'Be careful. That trigger is a little sensitive,' said Yale. He took from his pocket the envelope containing the notes, and laid it by the side of the weapon. Then he looked at his watch. "'Now I think that, to be on the safe side, we should go to the other office and lock the door,' he said. He accompanied his words by locking the door into the corridor. "'It is rather thrilling.' whispered Jack. He felt that a whisper was the fitting tone for that exciting moment. "'I hope it won't be too thrilling,' said Yale. They went to the outer office, and turned the key on him, and sat down. Jack unconsciously on Thalia Drummond's chair, a fact which he realised with a start. Was she of the Crimson Circle, he wondered. Parr had hinted as much. Jack set his teeth. He could not and would not believe even the evidence of his own eyes and his own common sense. So far from her influence waning, it was gathering strength. She was a being apart, and if she was guilty... He looked up and saw Parr's eyes fixed upon him. "'I don't pretend to be psychometrical,' said the detective slowly. "'But I've an idea you're thinking about Thalia Drummond.' 
I was, admitted the young man. Mr. Parr, do you think she's really as bad as she appears to be? Do you mean, do I think that she stole Froyant's Buddha? Because if that's what you mean, it's not a question of thinking. I'm certain. Jack was silent. He could never hope to convince this stolid man of the girl's innocence, and anyway it was madness, he recognized, to think of her as innocent when she had confessed her fault. "'You'd better keep quiet in there!' It was Yale's voice, and Parr grunted a reply. Thereafter they sat in dead silence. They heard him moving about the room, then he too was quiet, for the hour was approaching. Inspector Parr pulled his watch from his pocket and laid it on the table. The hands pointed to half-past three. It was now that the messenger was due, and he sat, his head strained forward, listening. There was no sound of attack. Presently there was a noise in Yale's room, a queer bumping noise, as though Yale had sat down heavily. Parr jumped to his feet. What was that? It's all right, said Yale's voice. I stumbled over something. Be quiet. They sat for another five minutes, and then Parr called. Are you all right, Yale? There was no answer. Yale, he called more loudly. Do you hear me? There was no reply, and springing to the door he snapped the lock and rushed into the room, Jack at his heels. What he saw might have paralyzed even a more experienced officer than Inspector Parr. Stretched upon the ground, his wrists fastened with handcuffs, his ankles strapped, and a towel over his face, lay the prostrate figure of Derek Yale. The window was open, and there was a strong scent of ether and chloroform. The package of money which had laid upon the table had disappeared. Three seconds later, an aged postman left the hall of the building, carrying his letter-bag on his shoulder, and the police who were watching the house let him pass without question. Chapter 23 The Woman in the Cupboard Parr bent down and snatched the saturated towel from the detective's face, and he opened his eyes and stared around. "'What is it?' he asked thickly, but the inspector was busy unscrewing the handcuffs. Presently he threw them clanking to the floor and lifted the man to his feet, as Jack, with trembling fingers, unbuckled the straps about Yale's legs. They led him to his chair, and he fell heavily into its depths, passing his hand across his forehead. "'What happened?' he asked. "'That's what I'd like to know,' said Parr. "'Which way did they go?' The other shook his head. "'I don't know. I can't remember,' he said. "'Is the door locked?' Jack ran to the door. The key was turned from the inside. He could not have gone that way, but the window was open. That was the first thing Parr had seen when he entered the room. He ran to the window and looked out. There was a sheer fall of eighty feet.' and no sign of a ladder or of any means by which Yale's assailant could have escaped. "'I don't know what happened,' said Yale, when he had partially recovered. "'I was sitting in this chair when suddenly a cloth was pulled across my face, and two powerful hands gripped me with a strength which I shouldn't have thought possible in any human being. Before I could struggle or cry out, I must have lost consciousness.' "'Did you hear my call?' asked Parr. The other man shook his head. "'But, Mr. Yale, we heard a noise, and Mr. Parr asked if you were all right. You replied that you had only stumbled.' 
"'It was not me,' said Yale. "'I remember nothing from the moment the cloth was put on my face until the moment you found me here.' Inspector Parr was at the window. He pulled down the sash, and he pushed it up again, and then he looked on the window sill, and when he turned there was a large smile on his face. "'That is the cleverest thing I've ever seen,' he said. Something of Jack's old antipathy to the stout detective returned. "'I don't think it's particularly clever. They've half killed Yale, and they've got away,' he said. "'I said it was clever, and it was clever,' said Mr. Parr, stolidly. "'And now I think I'll go down and interview the officers I left on duty in the hall.' But the watching officers had nothing to say. Nobody had entered or left the building except the postman. "'Except the postman, eh?' said Parr thoughtfully. "'Why, of course, the postman. "'All right, Sergeant, you can dismiss your man.' He went up in the elevator and rejoined Yale. "'The money's gone, all right,' he said. "'I don't know what we can do except report the matter to headquarters.' Yale was now nearly his normal self, and sat at his desk with his head resting on his hands. "'Well, I'm the culprit this time,' he said. "'And they can't blame you, Parr.' I'm still trying to puzzle out how they got into that window, and how they reached me without making a sound. Was your back to the window? Yale nodded. I never jumped at the window. I sat so that I could see both doors. Your back was also to the fireplace. They couldn't have come that way, said the other, shaking his head. No, this is the supreme mystery of my career, more astounding than the identity of the Crimson Circle. He got up slowly. I must report this to old man Froyant, and you'd better come along and lend me your moral support, he said. He will be furious. They left the office together, Yale locking both doors and slipping the key into his pocket. To say that Mr. Froyant was furious is to employ a very mild expression to describe his hectic frenzy. You told me! You practically promised me! he stormed, that the money would come back to me, and now you've come with a cock-and-bull story of being drugged. It is monstrous. Where were you, Parr? I was on the premises, said Mr. Parr, and the story Mr. Yale has told is correct. Suddenly, Froyant's rage died down, so suddenly that the calmness of his voice was almost startling after its previous rancor. All right, he said. Nothing can be done. The Crimson Circle have had their money, and that is the end of it. I'm much obliged to you, Yale. Please send your bill to me. And with these brusque instructions, he sent them to rejoin Jack, who was waiting in the street outside. Well, that beats the band, said Parr. I thought at one time he was going to have a fit. And then did you notice how his manner changed? Yale nodded slowly. At the moment of Froyant's change of manner, a great idea was formed in his mind, a tremendous and startling doubt that was almost paralyzing. "'And now,' said Parr, good-humouredly, "'as I have given you moral support, perhaps you will extend the same service to me. At police headquarters I am not so much persona grata as you. Come along and see the commissioner, and tell him what happened.' Derek Yale's office was silent and deserted. Ten minutes had passed since the drone of the elevator announced the departure of the three men. 
the silence was broken by a click, and slowly the doors and the big cupboard in the corner of Derek Yale's office were pushed open, and Thalia Drummond came out. She closed the doors behind her, and stood for a while, contemplating the room, deep in thought. From her pocket she took a key, opened the door, and, passing into the corridor, locked the door behind her. She did not ring for the elevator. At the farther end of the passage was a flight of narrow stairs which communicated with the caretaker's room on the top floor, and which were used only by him. Down these she went. At the bottom was a door leading into the courtyard of a building. This, too, she unlocked, and soon after had joined the throng of homeward-bound clerks that thronged the pavement at this hour. End of section 9